0: Hi, this is Father Tim, and welcome to RTB, Read the Bible Podcast. RTB offers students a Bible reading plan with commentary and questions and answers as they go on the journey to read the Bible. Okay, welcome back everybody to RTB. We're going to continue our journey through the letters of Paul, and we're going to cover the letter to the Galatians tonight. All right, so just kind of, again, this journey where we're going, where we've been, and understanding that uh, we're largely going through in order that the letters were written. And last week, we covered the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, this letter where you see Paul and his passion, his excitement. You see him come to the defense because the people in Corinth make a very strong, very stern attack on the person of Paul. They say he's not an authentic apostle, and largely they attack his character. But what you're going to see tonight is something close, but but very different. We're going to see, again, Paul on the attack, in a certain sense, or sorry, Paul on the defense, where someone is attacking him, but largely not necessarily his character, but the content of what he's preaching, okay? And so, as we get into the letter to the Galatians, this letter is, we kind of start and what many people refer to as like the core of Paul and core of Pauline theology. Galatians and Romans are often some of the most commonly quoted letters of Paul, especially in Protestant circles. I think at the end I hope to show I don't think it's quite as central as some people make it out to be, but these are incredible letters that give us quite a bit to understand who Christ is, what faith requires of us and what faith then offers to us. So you actually see Galatians and Romans, these next two weeks, will actually pair off of each other very well. Galatians is the short version, and Romans is essentially the long version. Okay, And there's actually slight differences that you'll see, and I'll touch a little bit more about that with Romans next week. But just to kind of get the background of what is Galatians, who is Paul writing to, and then how does that fit, And then we'll just go through and we'll hopefully be able to cover a good number of of passages uh, going through the letter to the Galatians, because there's only six chapters. So it's pretty straightforward, and it's a pretty clear structure you can see at least. Now, it's very confusing when you really dive into what he's saying, but the structure, I think, is actually pretty clear to see. So to start, what is, um, he says, Paul, you know, to the churches of Galatia. So what is Galatia? Where is Galatia? Unlike... Corinthians or Romans or even Ephesians or Thessalonians Paul is not writing to a specific city He's writing to largely a region and the region is what we understand today essentially as modern Turkey and if you actually read the academic literature behind this there's all sorts of debate about the timing of this passage and which communities specifically that Paul wrote to because he would have passed through the region of Galatia two different times at least In his first missionary journey, which would have been in the late 40s, he would have passed through the southern area. And then in his second missionary journey, he passed a little bit further north in the northern area. So there's all this fancy academic debate over uh, which communities he's specifically writing to and the timing of this. Um, And I'll point out to where that kind of timing happens. But as it relates to us in our study, and actually as you dive into Scripture as the Word of God, In one sense, it really doesn't matter, (laughs) and I think you'll see. So we're just going to kind of avoid that and just to know that he is writing to a group of churches in the Galatian area, in the area of Galatia, where he did um, found many of these churches. Um, So it's actually kind of cool. You can start to see this is actually what we would call um, potentially a circular letter, uh, a letter that he wanted to be read in the churches. So think about it today. We read the letters of Paul when we come to church. Right? And that's actually how many of these letters were actually passed uh, in the early church as well. They recognized they were written by an authority to someone, and then they were passed to be read. Okay? So the context of that's just the kind of the geography. Now moving on to the context. The context, as I said, was similar to 2 Corinthians in that 2nd Corinthians is Paul is writing a defense of his apostleship. And here Galatians as well. He is actually writing a defense because there have been people that have come into the region of Galatia and have preached what he refers to as another gospel. And Paul, again, gets very upset and very passionate to defend what is coming in. Now, the kind of, there's a fancy term that's been thrown around that the people that come in are what they call Judaizers. They're basically people that would claim that they would be Jewish Christians who were Jewish then accepted Jesus as the savior of the Jewish people, and became Christians. And what they say is basically that even though Christ is the fulfillment of the Messiah, or the law, the Jewish law, that you still have to follow all of the prescriptions of the Torah. It's worship prescriptions, it's ceremonial prescriptions, and it's legal and kind of ritual prescriptions of the law, even though we've accepted Christ as Messiah. So they call them Judaizers, that they basically, you know, when it really gets down to it, you'll see it's kind of funny. Paul is, is very clever in what he wishes for these people. Um, they essentially say the big thing is that you have to receive circumcision and then follow Christ. But circumcision would be required according to them to uh, become a Christian, that you'd have to be first be circumcised and then you would have to, then you could accept Christ. Or you also see it here where you would have to still follow Jewish food laws um, to follow Christ. And you'll see Paul passionately, very passionately, responds to both of these claims in particular, that that is not what Christ is asking. And it seems kind of like a funny thing for us now, but, I mean, the circumcision thing, if you're a man who is of age and you want to become Christian, <laughs> it's kind of a big deal whether or not you have to go through this ritual act where you circumcise your flesh, right? So that's a kind of a big deal. And obviously food is obviously super important as well. So how we live our life, and that's kind of what it, this issue comes down to, especially today. How are we called to live our life once we understand who Christ is and how we've come to understand him as the fulfillment of the law? So this is where you're going to see a lot of this stuff, especially with Romans and Galatians, about what is the law? What is the Jewish law? What exactly do we mean by that? And how does Paul approach that? And then it's a great question, how do we approach the Jewish law as Christians who have inherited, we could say, an Old Testament that's that, is, that we believe is the word of God written, okay? And so how does Paul respond? He responds in two ways, autobiographically and doctrinally. So the first part of this, um, we'll actually kind of just go right to the outline. The first part of this um, letter is, just his autobiography, first and second chapters, he gives a quick retelling of his story, of how he was called and who he conferred with to preach the gospel he was preaching. Chapters three and four are kind of the meat and potatoes of what is the doctrine of what we call justification, or how do we understand that we have become... um, I'm, I'm hesitant to use a word other than justification just because there's so many modern kind of connotations to it. But, yeah, what does it mean to be justified in Christ and how does that happen? Is the kind of meat and potatoes, chapters 3 and 4. Chapters 5 and 6, Then is this exhortation on what does it mean to be free, especially, as, it, as you'll see, free from the law when you're justified in Christ. So that's why we actually call this, the letter to the Galatians, is the letter of freedom. Alright, so the kind of one-word title to remember the letter to the Galatians is the letter of freedom. And then he finally has in the last couple of verses just a, a postscript um, as he does in most of his letters. So the kind of key theological pieces of this article or of this letter also follows the same outline. First, that Christ is the center of our faith and life. Second, that justification comes through faith and baptism, not the law, or not specifically as he talks about works of the law. And then, because we've been justified, we have this ability to live this life of freedom. That we're not bound by the law in the way that the Jewish people were. That because of the power of the Holy Spirit, we have this new life of freedom found in Christ. Okay? So, that's kind of the overarching structure of that. So, Christ is the center of life, justified through faith, given a free life in the Spirit. So, now let's just dive right into the letter itself, and we'll go quickly through all six chapters. So Paul starts openly, he he first starts just as he does every other letter, right? Paul, an apostle, but he makes a really clear distinction right from the start in Galatians verse one. Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me. So right away, Paul asserts his authority as an apostle through the power of Jesus Christ. So right there. Then he, he has his usual grace and peace to you. Usually, in all of Paul's letters, as we've seen, he usually says something very kind to the people, of like, "I have been praying for you. We send greetings." Paul, it's noticed in almost all of the academic literatures and kind of biblical commentators, that Paul does not start his letter this way. Paul sets the tone right away in this letter in verse six, when he says, "boom!" I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some of you, there are some who trouble you and who want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preach to you, let him be accursed." As we have said before, so now I say again if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you receive, let him be accursed. So Paul holds nothing back right from the start and goes, Guys, this is, I'm serious right now. What is happening, we need to correct, and we need to correct it immediately. So Paul is not happy, and he just goes right into it. And you, you see a kind of passion and a defense, particularly, again, of the doctrine in this letter than you do more than any of the other letters. It's also great to know this line that he repeats twice, let him be accursed. It's really important because the actual Greek there is, um, or actually what then becomes Latin, is anathema. Let them be anathema. Let them be accursed, let them be separated. Have nothing to do with them. It's kind of interesting, in the history of the Catholic Church, sometimes the Church has been accused at times, rightly or wrongly, of being too harsh and too strict. Because actually when church councils would come together and they would be defining doctrine or declaring dogma, that helping people see what the church teaches, they would use a phrase, um, unless you believe this, or if you believe this, and they would say a false teaching, then they would say, anathema sit, let him be anathema, or let him be accursed. And I think it's just important to know that when the church has done this throughout history, all they're doing is following Paul who when we see false doctrine, we have to correct it. We have to help people see the truth, right? And so Paul is very, very seriously concerned that the truth of the gospel is being perverted. And he wants to come to that defense, okay? All right. In verse 11, Then, brethren, I have, would have you know that the gospel which was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through a revelation of Of Jesus Christ. And this is where Paul then goes into this how his former way of life, how he was Jewish, but he was persecuting the the church. And then in verse 15 he says, But he who had set me apart, he who had consecrated me, that basically Jesus had set Paul apart and was pleased to reveal, or God set him apart, was pleased to reveal his son in order that he might preach among the Gentiles. And so Paul is again saying, All right, this gospel that we're preaching. Why I'm so on the defensive, we didn't make it up. This has been received by God, given to us, okay? And so then Paul talks a little bit about what he did after this moment of Damascus, and this is actually where we get a lot of the dating. If you go back a few lessons, we talked about the timeline for Paul and his conversion. A lot of this we get from here because he says he went away after he received and was kind of... um, really had this crazy conversion on the road uh, to Damascus. He went away to Arabia and then then again returned to Damascus. That's in verse 17. Then this is actually really important. Three years after I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And then he says, I'm writing this that I do not lie. He continues in chapter 2, this autobiographical section. He says, After 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up by revelation, and I laid before them, but privately, before those who were of repute, the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, lest somehow I should be running or had run in vain." This is important, and he'll continue this, because sometimes people like to emphasize that, wow, Paul is saying that he received this extraordinary revelation from God. And you'll have sometimes people will go out there and say, oh yes, God spoke to me. I had this extraordinary revelation, and I've been given authority. What Paul is so beautiful here is Paul is showing that he submits his authority to the church, to Cephas, namely Peter, the first pope. Right? And he actually goes and he lays them before them, making sure that what he's actually preaching is, in fact, true. And then as they go through it, and he talks about how he doesn't necessarily see them as holding this great status. He says that God makes no partiality. What they are doesn't ma- matter. But what they believe and the office they hold is important and does matter. And so what we see here is this beautiful line in verse um. Verse 7, that Paul has been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. And he says, And when they perceived the grace that was given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be the pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, only that they would have us remember the poor, which was the very thing I was eager to do. So Paul is saying that Peter, James, and John, the pillars of the church, gave them the right arm of fellowship, that they confirmed that, yes, you are an authentic apostle. The gospel that you're preaching is, in fact, true. And now you, Paul, and that's why Paul is sometimes called apostle to the Gentiles. And we get that right from Galatians, that Paul is especially supposed to take this message to who? the non-Jewish people, okay? And that makes sense why we're talking about people that were converts (laughs) to Christianity in this letter specifically, that they're non-Jewish, right? And all of his missionary journeys largely is around the area of Greece, right? So these are largely non-Jewish people that Paul is preaching to. It's also kind of interesting in verse 10, he says that they wanted him to remember the poor, which what he was certainly eager to do. Remember last chapter we had, or last lesson in 2 Corinthians, Paul takes up a collection for the poor in Jerusalem. So Paul is being faithful to his charge, basically, um, that the church is unified as one, that Paul is not an itinerant or rogue preacher or apostle apart from the kind of hierarchical structure of the church. You actually have the structure of the church right from the beginning. Now, Chapter 2, verse 11 is very interesting and has caused a lot of debate and concern because Peter, or Paul talks about how he actually rebukes Cephas at one point. And by Cephas, we here do largely mean Peter. Peter, whose name was Simon Peter or Cephas, which is um, then changed to Peter. There's a very, very small minority position that thinks it's possible that this Cephas is a different person than Peter, but I don't think it's that Uh, likely. It's possible. We don't know. But uh, Paul basically says that Cephas, or Peter, comes to Antioch, and when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he ate with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And with him, the rest of the Jews acted insincerely, so that even Barnabas was carried away. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves, who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet who know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ even we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Okay, we'll stop there because there's a lot to unpack there. First, this opposing Cephas to his face. A lot of people, and this is where the dating kind of questions come in, seeing this, basically the event in Acts of the Apostles, chapter 15, where we have the Council of Jerusalem, where the church is trying to figure out, there's questions, what do those that are Jews, what do they have to do to become Christian? And Paul calls out Peter for acting insincerely. Sometimes Protestant scholars will say, wow, this is proof that the papacy or this institution of the magisterium in Rome can be wrong." where we say, no, actually, there's actually further proof of actually the power and the authority of the papacy that cannot be led into error. A couple ways to see that. One is just to understand that Peter is not teaching anything incorrectly. He is acting incorrectly. He is being insincere. And when corrected, he is actually in, totally, he corrects himself. Paul is correct to say that, yes, um, Peter is insincere. This is actually very true throughout all history. We have had popes that have been, we can say, bad popes, that have not lived upright moral lives, but they didn't teach error. They never led the church astray into error. And that whole uh, council of Acts of the Apostles, chapter 15, shows that even if there's questions, the singular person, in this case Cephas, could even, in a sense, have a bad idea in his head But then when the church comes together, the church is always correct. It cannot err in matters of faith and morals. So far from being an attack against Roman Catholicism, and especially the understanding of the papacy and the power of the church, it actually helps strengthen it, that yes, the Holy Spirit will guide the church, and the apostles and bishops together help lead the church into truth. Okay? So basically, if you were a Jew, you don't... If you're a Jew, as, as Peter and Paul were... We don't want to go back to living like Jews. We have been set free by the power of Christ. So why would we make non-Jews live like Jews before they become Christians? And very important, so this line in chapter 2, verse 16, A man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, the word justification here... It's translated justification in your um, Bible, probably justification, but it's the same word later that you'll see is also righteousness. Righteousness and justification. It's interesting. Justification is actually a word not seen until, um, or the translation of justification is not seen until largely the Latin Vulgate is promulgated by, by St. Jerome. Justificare, or basically means... Justification means to be made just. What does that mean? It means that actually we're not just declared righteous. We're not just declared like that. We're it's basically a judge is standing up before you and says, I don't care what you've done. I just declare you. What he's saying is actually we become holy. Okay. We become able to approach God. We can say. And how does that happen? That happens through faith in Jesus Christ. That the faith in Jesus Christ has this ability to cleanse us of our sins, to free us, to justify us, right? Um, what you saw in the Acts of the Apostles was there was always two things. It wasn't just faith. It was repent, have, have this faith in Jesus Christ, and what? And be baptized, So you actually see in chapter three, Paul goes into understanding that what he's really talking about is baptism, okay? When we see this phrase, works of the law, it is a very specific phrase which does not refer to good works in general. This is where it's going to get a little confusing both this week and next week that I hope I can clarify the understanding of faith and works and how does that lead to justification or later on what we understand as salvation. I hope to kind of team that out. But as he's talking about works, he's not talking about good works. He's talking about works of the law. He's talking about ritual prescriptions like circumcision, specific food laws, okay? That is what he's talking about. So he's saying is that following these specific guidelines in the Old Testament will not lead you to becoming holy. That's what he's saying. Because... So this is why he says, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So Paul wants to be very clear that the law cannot lead to justification. Okay? What can? Only faith in Christ. I'll wait to kind of team this out as we continue to go. So then Paul says in verse 19, for I... Through the law died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ; it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died For no purpose. Paul, well, let's start with verse 20 there. I have been crucified with Christ. At what point had Paul been crucified? Has Paul ever been physically crucified? At this point, no. And you'll see later, Paul is never crucified. He does die a martyr's death, but it's by um, his, his head is actually cut off. He's beheaded. So, what is he talking about? He's talking about what we saw before that said, are you not unaware that those who have been baptized have been baptized into his death? That Paul has been crucified with Christ, that is, he has died with Christ. He's been knocked over on on that road to Damascus, and then he is what? He's baptized, he's washed. So he enters into the death so that then he can what? Now live a life in Christ. So what saved Paul was not, following the ritual prescriptions of the works of the law. It was faith in Christ, which led to baptism. And then this line is so beautiful. Galatians 2.20. If there's one, one single passage to remember from Paul, this is probably one of them. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Beautiful. But then that verse 21 is, he understands that if we could be justified by the works of the law, these ritual prescriptions, well, then Christ died for no purpose. The crucifixion was meaningless. It would have been just a silly symbol. But Paul realizes that it's actually the crucifixion which actually points to and is the fulfillment of everything the law was pointed to in Christ. And so it is faith and baptism, not works in the law, that leads to our justification, our being made holy, okay? Okay. Let's continue on, because he'll kind of team this out a little bit more. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? He says this in verse three, chapter 3, verse 1. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, or by hearing with faith? So then he moves from this understanding of this life in Christ to this gift of the Holy Spirit, which we understand that at our baptism, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, it is then strengthened and confirmed in our confirmation, but he's saying, Guys, did you literally you saw jesus Christ was was crucified? We told you this, he was seen, people were there, and now you think that you could gain um, the Holy Spirit that he sends by following these ritual prescriptions, these works of the law? you're missing the point that's why he's so angry now, okay, verse chapter three, verse six, Paul then goes into this very interesting passage where he now brings in the Old Testament. He, does, he brings in the Old Testament in two places here in this book, ver, uh, chapter 3 and chapter 4. So he references Abraham to prove his point. He says, thus Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That word righteousness is still the same word as justification. Your Bible probably says righteousness, but it's still justification and righteousness are the same Greek word, okay? So Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness or as justification. So you see that it is men of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are men of faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. Verse 10 for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by the things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no man is justified before God by the law. For he who through faith is righteous shall live. He's referencing there an Old Testament book called Habakkuk. The righteous will live by faith. But the law does not rest on faith, is what he says in verse 12. For he who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who hangs on a tree, that is, in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. I'm going to continue on just reading this, verse 15. To give a human example, brethren, no one annuls even a man's will or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, which is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance is by the law, it is no longer by promise. But God gave it to promise, gave it to Abraham by a promise. Okay, we're going to stop there. we got to know our Old Testament a little bit. He brings up Abraham and Moses. His whole point is that Abraham is the father of faith, right? We understand you look at Judaism, Islam, and Christianity all ascend under Abraham because Abraham was given these promises in the book of Genesis, okay? And the promise is to do what God asked, and he has to do this in faith. Go out and settle this land and I'll make your descendants as numerous, and Abraham listens. And so he says this is the pre-preaching of the gospel to Abraham, that there's going to be a promise, okay? And we will be fulfilled, or this this promise is fulfilled um, to Abraham because of the faith that Abraham did, right? Then Paul brings in timeline. He understands that timing is important that the law, these ritual prescriptions, which then came through the hands of Moses, were added almost 400 years after the time of Abraham. So he's saying, okay, this law comes in later, and then he says, basically, we understand that there's actually a curse if you don't follow the law, that those who follow the law are called to do them, but if you don't do what the law tells you, you're under a curse. So Paul is basically saying, no one can really actually fulfill the law by their own power. No one has perfectly fulfilled the law. That is why those under the law are under this curse, that they're basically destined to not be saved, to not be justified. Um, But Christ redeemed us from this curse, having become a curse for us. Basically, he took on both the punishment of the law which says cursed be everyone who hangs on a tree so he literally fulfills the curse that the jewish people took upon themselves by not being able to fulfill the law and jesus also perfectly fulfilled the law himself he's the only one who perfectly fulfills the law and so by his power we now and through his power we have the ability to be justified not through these works of the law And so basically, Paul then says, don't look at Moses here, look at Abraham. There was a promise given, and that promise is fulfilled not by offsprings, but everything promised to Abraham was supposed to be fulfilled in one person, Jesus Christ. So Jesus both fulfills the promise of Abraham, takes on himself the curse of the law for those that didn't fulfill it, and then actually fulfills the law, thereby redeeming the law. So us having faith in Jesus gives us the ability to be justified. Verse 19, it gets super interesting. Then Paul says, okay, if this is the point, if the law just gives us a curse, what's the point of the law? Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was ordained by angels through an intermediary. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given which could make one alive, then righteousness would be indeed by the law. But the scriptures consigned all things to sin, so that what was promised to faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believed. Okay, so he says the law was added because of transgressions. Think about this. We only need laws if we can't follow them. We need laws to point us in a right direction. Let's give the Ten Commandments, for example. This is a law from God. There's a law in the Ten Commandments which says, Thou shalt not murder. Okay? Look around the room. I don't think anybody here has trouble following that law. You don't need that law. It's already built in. If you were having trouble seeing whether it was right or wrong to kill people, you would need someone to tell you, yes, this is wrong. And law is supposed to point us to what is right and wrong. So the Jewish people had this promise from Abraham, and then these covenants are fulfilled, but the problem is the Jewish people kept falling away from God. Where is this key moment that... The Jewish people especially receive all of these added prescriptions of the law. Because Moses comes down with his Ten Commandments, right? Which is a perpetual law to be instituted for all time. But he comes down Mount Sinai with this Ten Commandments law, and all of a sudden the people have fallen away and have worshipped a false idol, uh, a golden calf. So what happens? More laws are added. The Israelites need more direction. So there's more and more and more that gets added on, right? Which makes it harder and harder to follow. So in one sense, this law is given, pointing out the sinfulness of the Israelites. They cannot keep this, right? So the law was added because of transgressions, okay? The best analogy I've heard is that the law is essentially a referee. According to Paul, and you actually see next in Romans, Paul doesn't go back and forth. Paul says the law is good. And it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. The law is necessary to point out what's right and wrong, but it's not sufficient. It can't actually make you holy. So the law is the referee on the side of the game that's pointing. These are the rules you need to follow, but a referee can't actually make someone win a game. They can't actually play. So the the law is this referee on the side pointing to, this is the way you follow morality as laid out by God, but only Jesus can actually make you holy, okay? So the law is good and necessary. You'll see that particularly in Romans, but it's insufficient. But now he says that in verse 25, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a custodian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. So Paul is talking about faith up to this point, right, in justification. Now he actually says outright, you were under this custodian of the law. It was a guardian. It was a referee guiding you until the moment that Jesus Christ fulfills this. And now, through faith, when you are baptized, you are baptized into Christ. So you are not Jew or Greek, nor slave nor free, neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to a promise. So by faith and baptism, we fulfill what we become one with Christ. And if we're one with Christ, we see that we're the one that's to fulfill this promise. You are now an heir. So he says that, I mean, and this is now chapter 4, verse 1, I mean that as an heir, as long as, she is, as he is a child, is no better than a slave, though he is the owner of all the estate. But he is under the guardians and trustees until the date set by the Father. So with us, when we were children, we were slaves to the elemental spirits of the universe. But when the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So through God, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. Galatians 4 4 through 4 7, also worthy of memorization. Because Paul is saying, You are actually now not slaves. Before you were under this curse, you were slave to this works of the law that couldn't save you. But now, when you've been baptized into Christ, you have been set free from the law so that what? You might receive adoptions. So you move from slavery to sonship. The Catholic understanding of what it means to be justified, which happens in baptism, it's the moment that you become a son of Adam to a son of God, that you become a son, of, a son to slavery to a free son or daughter. So this is great news. Paul is saying you're free. You are set free because you are heirs to this promise of God, this promise of an incredible blessing, the promise of a beautiful life, the promise of actually being redeemed. And that comes through faith and baptism. Verse 4-4 also, there's a lot we could say about this born of the woman, born under the law, because this is a reference to Mary. There's actually some really cool, neat things about how it actually helps even... Point to the virgin birth, about how um, the way that the language is structured implies that Joseph is not the father, that um, it's an unusual thing to say born of woman. So Paul is actually pointing out to the Blessed Virgin Mary. um, But Jesus is born under the law, but that so that we can be redeemed from the law to become sons and daughters. This is our identity to cry out as the Son Himself, Jesus Christ, does Abba, Father. So you're not a slave especially not a slave to the works of the law. You're a son, and if you're a son, then you're an heir. You're an heir to a promise, and that's essentially the promise of heaven. Okay. Paul, then we can skip down a little bit then, basically just says, you were formerly in bondage again, and now you know, you've been known by God. Verse 19, my little children with whom I am again in travail, until Christ is formed in you, that basically we need to then grow and develop this understanding of our identity in Christ so that we can say like Paul does, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. Then Paul goes in verse 421, he goes into this beautiful analogy of Hagar and Sarah. Again, he goes back to the Old Testament, and This is where you got to kind of know your Old Testament to understand what Paul is talking about. Because Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and one by a free woman. And in verse 23, Chapter 4, verse 23. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, the son of the free woman through promise. Now, this is an allegory. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. If you skip down, he says, Now we, brethren, like Isaac, are children of the promise. In verse 28. But as that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So it is now, but what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave and her son, for the son of the slave shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brethren, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So in the Old Testament, Abraham is promised a child, but he and Sarah don't believe and don't trust yet. Or really Sarah kind of really is worried and says, go into the slave woman, Hagar, and have a son. Abraham listens, and then there is a son born of Abraham. The thing is, though, that's a son of a slave, and that was not the son of the promise, because they didn't quite believe and trust God. Isaac is the son of the promise, okay? Now, see, so he's basically saying that we need to be descendants of the son of the promise, that we, this is who we are interesting though, and he says, in verse 24, it's really interesting, he actually says this is an allegory. When we talked in the first lesson, it was about how we read the Bible in an allegorical fashion, that Paul actually helps us see that what's going on in this story is really less about what actually happened with Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and their children, and is always again pointing to Jesus. Because if you actually read the passage in Genesis, I encourage you to go back there and look at that. It really comes in kind of um, Genesis chapter 21. Abraham and Sarah are really harsh to Hagar. It's super fascinating. You're like, what is going on? This is the father of faith. But then kind of what's interesting is that, as he says, this is an allegory. These women are two covenants. So there's these women, Hagar and Sarah, the free woman and the slave woman, are supposed to represent, um, represent this covenants. The old covenant that's only done through works of the law and the new covenant in Christ. This is where Paul has a total flip because you would think that because um, he's talking to, the, to, to many Jewish people and he says, actually, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. Where, what is Mount Sinai? It's where they received the law. So he's pointing out that actually this old law is a law of slavery and that we need to get rid of slavery and understand that we're actually... We don't want to focus on the law. Do not focus on the law that's given by Moses. Focus more on the promise of freedom given through Abraham. Okay? So that's what he's saying again. He's highlighting this point of we're made for freedom. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not again submit to a yoke of slavery. Set yourself free from this ritual... Old Testament, making myself justified through the works of the law. You've been free. He actually then says in verse 3, I testify that every man who receives circumcision, that he is bound to keep the whole law. And when you do that, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail but faith working through love. Okay. So Paul is saying, don't go back to the slavery of the law. You have been set free, and if you actually find yourself going back to this ritual I must prescribe that, you're actually falling away from the gospel. You're incurring sin in this, you're not living the way you're supposed to live. And he says, at the end of the day, circumcision or uncircumcision, actually, as we're talking about the law, doesn't mean anything. So you can be circumcised or you cannot be circumcised. But what does matter is faith working through love. This is actually really important because some people say, especially in some of the more modern Protestant denominations, that, yes, faith is all we need. Faith alone justifies us, and it doesn't matter what you do. Paul could not be more clear that there's nothing close to what he's saying. He's saying, actually, now because you have been set free, you've been justified, what matters is what? Faith working through love. So you have been free, and now you need to put that freedom into action. Basically, in the Old Covenant, the law was the referee. It didn't give you actual power to fulfill the law. It could only point out what's right and wrong. The new law, which is the new law of the Holy Spirit in Christ, gives you the power to follow the commandments of God, to love God and to love neighbor, to love. That you actually now have the power in Christ that the Old Testament people did not have. And so you see this then. So Paul says it doesn't mean you don't have to do anything. Freedom doesn't mean do whatever you want. Freedom means you have actually the power to live an upstanding life in the Spirit. So if you go to verse 13, You were called to freedom, brethren, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love be servants of one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul is saying again, what's the point of the law? It was to point you to love, but it didn't give you the power to love. So you're always going to be a slave. Now in Christ, I've got the power. I can actually live this out. And even more, that idea of that faith alone, or it doesn't matter what you do. Paul could not be more clear because in 16 through 25 he talks about what does it mean to live according to this new law of the Holy Spirit. He says, Walk, but I say, walk by the Spirit and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you would. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So if you have the Holy Spirit, you're not. ...bound by this law. Now the works... I'll I'll repeat that again, verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are plain. Immorality, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, selfishness, dissension, party spirit, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and the like. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us have no self-conceit, no provoking of one another, no envy. So he's saying you now have the power of the Holy Spirit. What you do actually matters, and if you go back to these sins of the flesh, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. He warns you. This is one of Paul's, again, he does this in Ephesians, and we already saw it in 1 Corinthians 6, list of mortal sins things that will keep you from inheriting the kingdom, even after you've been baptized, even after you've come to faith. But the Holy Spirit is this new law. There's no law against, there's no prohibition against love, joy, peace. It's a forward thinking. It's a positive. This is how you recognize the grace of the Holy Spirit. This is what you have been given in your baptism and your confirmation. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And look in your life. This is really important. Look in your life when these are present. When these are present in your life, you have the power of God with you. When you have these in your life, you know that God is with you. Sometimes you—where want, where is God? Where are you? Where there's love, joy, peace, patience, you can know that the Lord is with you, that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Chapter 6, the final close here. Bear, verse 2, bear one another burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So this new law of Christ is love God, love neighbor, and carry this forward, that we have the possibility to, to do this. Um, verse 10, so then as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all men and especially those of the household of faith. This is the freedom that we're talking about. We, freedom is not just a opportunity for all of these choices. We can do whatever we want. It is a freedom from the law. You are no longer slave to these sort of ritual works of, works of, um, works righteousness as it's sometimes called. You now have the capability. You are free to be able to love. And that's what he is saying. Do this. Use this power of the Holy Spirit to love your neighbor. He closes with a, see what large letters I'm writing to you with in my own hand, verse 11. Um, And he says, at the end of the day, far be it for me, this is verse 14, far be it for me to glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He says one more time, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. What he's saying is through baptism, it's not just a covering over, that you actually become a whole new creation with a new power to be able to fulfill this law. That is what is the power of baptism and faith. You are totally reborn, regenerated, we would say. He says, peace and mercy be upon all who walk by this rule, this new of new creation. He said, let no man trouble me, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit Amen. That last one is very interesting. It um, talks about, I bear the marks of my body. It's actually the Greek word is stigmata, um, which actually throughout history, certain people have borne the actual physical wounds of Christ. So there's great debate whether or not Paul is actually speaking physically there. If Paul had the stigmata because he's talking about the power of, uh, of uniting to the cross, right? And it's possible that he did. But what he's saying is that when you're baptized into Christ, it is as if, you are crucified, you, are lit- you have died, you have baptized into the death of Christ, and now you rise a new creation with the ability to live in the grace and the peace of the triune God, the Father God, the Son God, the Holy Spirit. And now you've got the capability to live a life of grace, of peace. So Galatians is a letter of freedom because we are free from the law, and we are now free with the power of the Holy Spirit to live what Christ commands, to live as he lived, and to share that freedom with everyone we meet. So, very interesting letter. There's a lot going on. It's compact. It's kind of hard to understand. Some of his thoughts seem to be incomplete. What you'll see next week in Romans is similar thoughts, but a little bit more elaborated, a little bit more lengthy. Um, So we won't go through Romans as in depth, but you'll see a little bit more calm. This is Paul very... (laughs) angry because he's concerned that people are literally preaching a different gospel, that I still need to do all this stuff, which he says is basically slavery. But no, you've been set free by the power of God and through the Holy Spirit, that this power of baptism in faith in Christ gives us this opportunity to live a totally new life as a new creation. And that's why it's good news. It's good news that with Christ we can do all things. With Christ we can... Live this beautiful life, we can be actually transformed into the holiness God asks of us. So that's the letter of Galatians. Be happy to answer any questions offline. Feel free to send those in. Next week, we'll read Romans. There's 16 chapters, so it's about two to three chapters per day. Uh, Paul's longest letter, uh, his arguably most confusing. Uh, arguably, the most important letter, but we'll dive into that and see how it builds off of what we've learned in Galatians. So, the grace, of peace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of RTB. If you have questions you would like answered on the podcast, You can email them to Father Tim at tmergen at uwcatholic.org. That's t m e r g e n at uwcatholic.org. Thanks, and be assured of my prayers for you as you read the Bible.